The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. It's Wednesday morning. These are your headlines. The Dow drops 470 points, posting its worst day since early January on fresh trade war fears, whilst the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq notch their biggest declines since March. Now, stocks across Asia are following Wall Street lower, with China's April trade surplus coming in well below estimates, with exports falling unexpectedly and imports surprising with a rebound. Double Line CEO Jeffrey Goodluck tells CNBC US stocks are in a bear market and there's a good chance President Trump delivers on his threat to raise tariffs on China. I think we're going to keep seeing more tension and I think that the 25% tariff bump is better than 50% chance. Lyft posts a large loss in its first report as a public company as ride-hailing drivers plan a global strike over low pay ahead of Uber's IPO. rough day on the street as markets again took stock of the language from the White House around tariffs against China as uh, we are now battling the possible escalation again of this trade spat. And when it comes to the Dow, it was the worst day since the beginning of the year for the Dow Jones, a fall of 1.8% or 473 points across the markets. You can see the red ink. Now, technicals breached to the Dow closing below its 50-day moving average. We had selling on the S&P 500. The deepest falls, though, coming out of technology, an area of the market that has been very strong, almost 2% lower. So tech uh, by sector, the worst performer on markets. Uh, semiconductors also pushing uh, the sector south. Let's get into the Asian markets and the reaction we're seeing across the globe. The Japanese stock market falling fairly aggressively, 380 plus points or close to 1.8%. A retreat for Hong Kong. You can see China stocks, though, somewhat limited. We've had some better data out of that part of the world today on exports. Uh, better than the market had been anticipating, helping shield the economy to an extent as we see a fall of about a tenth of a percent. Shenzhen actually trading higher, so we're seeing a bounce of eight tenths. We'll come back to the market action, but there's a quick snapshot of uh, the state of affairs. I think after the market felt like it got through some of the issues with tariffs, it sort of reared its head on day two, though, I think, on markets. Absolutely, Karen. Um, very, very busy day, of course, on the corporate earnings on both sides of the Atlantic, as well as our concerns about uh, the trade dispute as well. Let's get straight into Siemens, which um, jumped the gun yesterday with some very interesting news about spinning off its struggling gas and power unit. They're going to look more at the smart digital side uh, of their business for growth. In terms of Today's numbers, though, actually um, parts of the numbers look OK. Um, report second quarter orders up 6% to 23.6 billion euros, uh, as opposed to 23.342 billion uh, in front data poll, um, according to Reuters. Uh, revenues were up uh, 4%, but that is below expectations, 20.94 billion euros, as opposed to expectations of 20.34 billion. Industrial businesses up 7%. Uh, the profit margin at the industrial business, excluding severance, uh, equals 11.7% as well. So there is something in there 
uh, for both sides of the equation, i.e. a lower revenue figure than expected, but elsewhere uh, a beat on uh, the orders side of things. The shares, um, well, they've up 5.2% uh, in the year to date so far. But as I say, the big news is that this company um, is taking the knife to the gas and power units with a listing uh, by 2020. And that was a big announcement we saw in the last 24 hours. Right. Uh, let's push on to another German company. And this is Commerce Bank. One I think particularly interesting, uh, given there's been consolidation talks with Deutsche Bank and then potential um, other acquirers also on the scene as well. 33 plus percent higher year to date as the performance of the stock off the highs that we saw in 2018, but still very strong recovery story. Let's get into the commentary. They say they're continuing to implement cost reductions despite further increases in compulsory contributions and ongoing strategic investments. Their cost targets therefore remain unchanged. Net interest income has risen by 12% versus the first quarter of last year. They say that's contributed to stable revenues of 861 million euros. Uh, 864 was where they were last year. So it is a fraction under when they talk about stable, though. Corporate <coughs> client segment that has gained 800 new clients since the start of the year. The bank is uh, planning to maintain a payout ratio for the financial year this year at a level that is comparable to last year. The cost base should remain below 6.8 billion euros in 2018 while there is a drag from a risk result that's expected to be at least 550 million euros. Uh, and when it comes to capital, I think this is quite interesting because we've seen a lot of European banks that have not come in anywhere near their peers. This bank is uh, targeting a, a common equity tier one ratio that would be in line with the peers at 12.75% by the end of 2018. They're expecting higher underlying revenues than the previous year. Um, the capital ratio 12.7% reflects the counting effects due to the introduction of IFRS 16 and dividend accrual. Very briefly before Annette comes in as well, um, everything you said there sounded like really positive as well, but this one is dismally priced by the market. They think it's worth roughly a third uh, on a price-to-book ratio, i.e. 0.3, so one of the lowest-rated banks in Europe as well, and something that I know wasn't put at the top of the Commerce Bank statement, but I've just dug down a little bit deeper to find it. Net return on equity. Now, a decent return on equity in the old days was about 15%. If you can get to double digit now, that'd be great. Uh, return on equity over at Commerce Bank is appallingly low at 1.7. Yes, that is uh, one of the issues too when you talk about whether there should be consolidation. Uh, just uh, producing the group operating profit at 244 million euros. Uh, this is uh, a tad under the number from last year. So let's get to Aneta for more. Aneta, it's a stable report card, but there's not a lot of growth coming through in some of these numbers. How do you think this sets the scene when we have not had those merger talks progress with Deutsche Bank? Well, it's probably uh, increasing the pressure to find another uh, potential tutor for Commerzbank because clearly, as Steve was pointing out, the return on equity is just nowhere where it should be for a bank. And um, also the visibility for an improvement is not really here because clearly the management is stating that the strategy is working uh, fine and that they're on the right path. But looking at the numbers, there is not really uh, like a vision of how that can really improve because clearly their strategy is to do retail banking in Germany and Commerzbank is a sheer play on higher interest rates and we are not getting higher interest rates uh, in, in the near-term future, in the mid-term future probably even. And so this bank has no credible growth strategy as such because the retail market in Germany is highly competitive and they are probably not going to earn 
a lot more money with more customers because what they are doing essentially they're luring customers to their bank to uh, by pro- by giving them uh, an incentive a money incentive to open accounts so i guess it's a very interesting uh, question to ask them how much money they actually earn per customers and that's a question they are not going to answer you um let me run you through the numbers to also give you an idea where the analyst estimates were and how perhaps the numbers might be digested by the market. So uh, in net terms, uh, it came in ahead of expectations with 120 euro. Also operating profit came in ahead of expectations, which was um, the, the segment private clients was disappointing. Analysts had expected 181 million euros of operating profit, whereas the bank posted 153. Um, when it comes to the corporate clients, the middle stand business, This was a bit of ahead of expectations. That's a positive surprise here because this unit actually went from being the powerhouse of Commerzbank to like a struggling business almost inside the bank. So all in all, the numbers look great, but I think everybody will concentrate on where can growth really come from, where how they, can they improve their profitability um, going forward, and that's most likely not happening on a standalone basis. The potential suitors are clearly Unicredit from Italy. They have it's one of the best capitalized banks in Germany, and they have a huge branch network in the southern sea uh, of Germany through um, yeah HVB. Uh, that would be a potential yeah credible candidate. But also ING, who according to Manager Magazine even promised to move their headquarters to Germany in order to facilitate such a deal. So I guess it will be an interesting year for Commerzbank. With that, back to you. Aneta, thank you very much for that. Uh, just contextualizing the bank story in Europe, you may recall the you know the height of the financial crisis and then the cleanup. We were talking about non-performing loans, one of the big issues for the bank's denting profitability. What do you think the NPLs are now? For for Commerce Bank, Steve? If you had to produce a number percentage-wise, what do you think they are? Um, high figures out of Italy come in at 8%, 9% now. Low figures out of Spain come in about 3.8% now. So let me go somewhere around the 6-7 mark. Less than 1%, 0.9% of a percent. So it's not bad credit quality yeah. impacting the fortunes of the bank. No. That, that's not one of the issues. So, you know, you sort of have this perception, I think, when you're at the height of a financial crisis or recession, once you get past those negative Im- impacts on the balance sheet, <coughs> you should see some growth at some point. But it's not materialising. So that just says to me it's a moribund business. If you've got no performing, no meaningful non-performing loans, right. which was what you just said there, and you've got no meaningful return on equity, what have you got? You've got right. a zombie bank, haven't you? Let alone when the uh, next financial crisis or recession hits and you start to have to price in negative credit quality, worsening loan portfolios. Okay, we're going to try something new on CNBC. We're going to have a double walk to the wall, okay. apparently. Can we so do let, this? let's just try this. Yeah, so as, as and we, we walk and talk, we we're going to tell you what's going on in these US markets, which, quite frankly, could have been worse. The Dow at its worst yesterday was, wait, wait for it, down 649 points. 649 points for the Dow, but we finished down 473 points, which when you net that with what we saw in the previous session, you get to the lows of the previous session, i.e. the market was spoiling for decline with or without the uh, travel manifest of Liu He uh, becoming apparent to the markets. Because look, 
The chap arrives on the 9th of May, i.e. tomorrow, in Washington. The chap leaves on the 10th of May, i.e. Uh, on the Friday as well. Is that long enough to resolve all this multitude of issues? Uh, and I tell you what, <clears throat> don't ever think we don't do the work on this one. I have just gone through 194 pages of the US Trade Representative's new tariff list as well. I tell a lie, I didn't get beyond page nine because it was all fish. But um, the truth is, it is an There's exhaustive chemicals. list that they've put together for the extra tariffs. So the US was ready for this. They didn't put that together overnight as well. You missed the tinned fruit and vegetable at the end, the beauty products, the chemicals, the adhesives. I got to <laughs> urchins. I got to snakeheads, genuinely. Genuinely, on, in the first five pages. Norwegian lobster? Uh, I got to snakeheads, frogs, legs and urchins. <laughs> There's the There's millennial diet Sunday. for you. <laughs> Add in an avocado and you've got a full millennial diet there. Uh, Nasdaq was down 2%. The uh, technology stocks were the worst performers uh, in the market as well. Semiconductors were the worst. I'll come to that in a few moments' time. Boeing and Caterpillar, of course, uh, very, very exposed. Do you remember uh, two days ago? You probably do. You've got better memory than me. I was talking about the increased costs for tractors, for the likes of John Deere, uh, and for machine equipment for the likes of Caterpillar as well. They're around about 9-10% increase in cost since we had the initial round of tariffs as well. So when you see a tweet that says, and it could come from anyone, not naming any names, a tweet comes and says, the Chinese are paying more because of the tariffs. I'm a tariff man. Now, OK, that is a specific person. But the fact of the matter is, it's American companies who are deciding whether they uh, put some of that cost uh, on their producers overseas. But by and large, it's American companies, when they import the goods that pay the tariffs, that they can either, A, cut their costs, B, put some of that on the company which they're buying from, i.e. the Chinese, C, give it to uh, their customers, uh, or three, basically do a mix of the above. And that's what American companies are doing. Boeing, of course, very susceptible declines, uh, given the recent safety issues as well, down 3.9%. Let's have a look at technology and chip makers. These were the biggest sectors to the downside. And not surprising, not because there's some meaningful technology transfer issue. It's basically because, of course, uh, the fact that these sectors have been the places where there's been herding. And we've seen certain stocks, of course, and you know them, the Fangs Plus, where they've seen herding and they've seen the most inflows on the way up. Hence, when we go down, that's why you often see the biggest sell-offs as well. But let's pull out one or two names for you. NVIDIA down 3.75% there. Looks the worst of it. Qualcomm also coming off aggressively. Are there any safe havens? Uh, there are. But before we get to that, I just wanted to pick up on your point about uh, taking stock of some of the market trades. Because we've heard day after day a lot of fund managers concerned about the profile of earnings, the ability to keep on growing margins. And much further down that list were a number of metals from nickel to lead, for instance, uh, a lot of chemicals in the mix as well. And these are products that go into the industrial making of certain goods and into uh, profits. So if you are going to see any increase in industrial metals and chemicals, there could be a flow and impact mm. to some of those margins. So it's worth bearing that in mind why money is now shifting from your side to my side on the safe havens here. Spot gold again, picking up more action, two tenths of a percent. The price we're looking at, 12.86. The US dollar drifting to the Japanese yen. The Japanese yen, a typical safe haven. Remember one of the commentators telling us in recent months, if you had have true risk off, then you will see it in the safe havens like the Japanese yen. And this has actually transpired. We are now below the 110 mark on dollar yen rates. Uh, dollar Swissy, 101.87. Uh, dollar moving south by close to a tenth of a percent to the Swissy. And it is seeing uh, a pickup in some of the activity on bond markets as a result of these safe haven flows. So we are seeing yields come down, bond prices uh, go up.
and particularly actually away from that US market as well. You were seeing it in at JGBs, also in bonds in Germany. So two other markets, Germany and Japan, is where some of those bond prices are seeing some action. Now to the Asian markets, by comparison, you've got uh, Chinese stocks limiting some of the damage today after what was a decent uh, run of data on the import-export side. The market was shaping up for... Uh, Bit of a, a drop in the uh, numbers on exports, but 2.7% uh, is what we had for the month. In terms of uh, the other markets, you can see 7 tenths down in Hong Kong, half of a percent south on the ASX. Uh, switching over these charts directly to those Chinese markets and the yuan, dollar yuan rates at 6.77 uh, currently. And uh, the market that is trying to pick up a little bit of green after a very sharp fall on day one, immediately pricing in some of the falls. Don't forget a lot of the markets fell initially, then picked up some gains. But that was not the case with the Shenzhen on Monday when it dropped uh, more than 7%. So you are seeing uh, some of the damage there limited, Steve. OK, what does the Chinese data mean for uh, the trade talks? Because the trade data has barked expectations in April with an overall trade surplus of just $13.84 billion, less than half the figure forecast by Reuters. So Eunice in Beijing, the Chinese can turn around and say, look, guys, we are adjusting our economy. We're not just having this exporting model as well. We're importing lots more as well. Or, or is that going to fall on deaf ears? Good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. You know, you're not the only one who's been looking over that list of all the different products that could be affected. I was speaking to a Chinese exporter that who sells to the United States, and he was doing that. He and his staff were doing that yesterday, and he told me that his conclusion is that the Trump tariffs are going to kill his business. So this is what we're seeing, a lot of this chatter and concern about the impact of the tariffs affecting the export sector. In fact, that was reflected in the numbers that we got today. The April export figures fell uh, by a long shot. Uh, missing by uh, falling by 2.7% from a year ago compared to expectations for a rise of 2.3%. Imports jumped by 4%. And that was when the market was waiting actually for a 3.6% fall. So the talk now is that the weak orders uh, for the exports were uh, coming from the US, or, or the lack of them uh, from the US as well as uh, from Europe, and that the stimulus measures, uh, in, such as the um, cut in the VA probably helped the import numbers. But the talk now is that among a lot of these Chinese exporters is that they're, they're worried that the latest threat by President Trump to raise tariffs is going to spike um, a hoped for recovery in the export sector in the second half of this year. So uh, they're very concerned about that. And that's in the short term, medium to long term. Uh, people are worried about what this then means for the supply chain. And a lot of the chatter now is around this concept called China plus one. So it's a strategy that's been in place for a couple of years, mainly for bigger companies, which essentially means don't put all of your production eggs into the China basket, have a couple suppliers outside. But now it's being reinterpreted by more companies to mean make sure that for any critical component that you have, you have at least one supplier outside of the country, because the expectation is that not only are they're going to get hit by these U.S. tariffs, but they're also going to uh, see a China that is going to be much more determined not to cave in to U.S. pressure. And so they need to prepare, uh, from what, I'm t what they were telling me, for the next five to 10 years where they will see points of crisis. So that means to a lot of these suppliers that they are going to look for South, um, alternative suppliers in Southeast Asia, in um, India, as well as um, Ethiopia. Guys? 
Excellent, Eunice. Uh, many thanks. So, yeah, quite an extraordinary list there, isn't it? 194 pages. We'll come to that, I'm sure, throughout the show. Right, coming up also on the show, Uber issues. Find out why drivers across the US and UK are trying to gridlock the app ahead of its mega IPO. Line CEO Jeffrey Goodlack has told CNBC he believes President Trump will likely follow through on his threat to raise tariffs on China. I think that you've got an irresistible force meeting an immovable object where both the Premier of China and the President of the United States want to come across that they prevailed and didn't give in, which means to me that I think we're going to keep seeing more tension. And I think that the 25% tariff bump is better than 50% chance. Christopher Smart joins us, head of Bearings Investment Institute. Uh, Christopher, the market's been trying to work out whether those tariffs are going to come into force. And it seems likely if you just weigh up the time frame when the Chinese Vice Premier will be in the United States and when those tariffs come into force, uh, effectively one day to negotiate anything. What's the impact likely to be if we do see those tariffs come into force and stay there for a while. What impact will that have on the U.S. and the global economy? Well, I'm still a little more optimistic than uh, Jeffrey Goodluck. I think um, those of you who are long snakeheads and urchins uh, mm -hmm. don't need to be Someone's too concerned been paying attention to the about, show. <laughs> uh, about the tariffs being slapped on. I think, you know, this is sort of a typical late-stage negotiation between China and the U.S. Markets were caught off guard, but I think if you had thought about it a little bit longer, you know, China typically comes to these end stages of negotiations, realizes the negotiators have gotten a little bit ahead of their skis, can't quite deliver what the bureaucracy can. Um, uh, and from the president's point of view, if he sees some backsliding, I think it's very typical that he would sort of raise a, raise a threat like this. So I think we're probably in for some bumpy days. Whether the tariffs are put on for a few weeks or not, it's hard to tell right now. But it, it feels like this is sort of late stage um, cage rattling. And uh, we're still headed towards an agreement sooner or later. What if it's not? And what if those tariffs uh, stay for much longer than just a few weeks? Well, that'd be bad. Uh, I mean, I think it would be bad both for, uh, for the markets who've been expecting an agreement as well as for the economy, which, you know, the U.S. is doing quite well. But I think uh, Asia and Europe have been depending on a recovery in China. And uh, the whole framework, I think, that we've all been operating under is that they were, we were headed towards a deal. Now, um, I think your uh, colleague in, in Beijing pointed out a very important point, which is companies, no matter, what, whether, no matter what the deal looks like now or when the deal is struck, companies in general have to look at their supply chains and start planning for how to get some backup to those supply chains. Because just because the deal is struck now doesn't mean we aren't going to come back in a few months or years and start renegotiating a lot of these very deep-seated deep -seated issues that divide the US and China. There's some very good commentary out at the moment. We're trying to read as much as we can. But one point um, that keeps getting made is the insularity of the US economy means it can weather global trade storms a lot better yeah. than other economies. That's one of the many reasons why the US trades at a premium in terms of equities as well, because a lot of those companies are, are looking at their own continent and think, you know, we can carry on as we were as well. That said, is profitability sustainable uh, and are valuations sustainable? given the premium that the U.S. trades at? I think that's the issue. It's in the short term, the U.S. is, you know, quite able to withstand some of these near-term uh, near turbulence um, uh, issues. 
I think the longer term, though, is if you're a company that has to plan uh, your business plan, plan your supply chain, where are you going to invest, it becomes a much more expensive prospect to think of a U.S. and Chinese relationship that has this much friction pent up in it. Uh, you have to make sure that you have a business model that can sustain 10% tariffs coming back, 25% tariffs coming back over a 10-year cycle. Uh, and so I think that's what makes it a much more difficult longer-term outlook for the trade relationship. Uh, and just winding out slightly, the presidential cycle, of course, uh, it feels like we're right in the middle of it already, even though we've got you know, a good year and a half to go still. We started a year ago, yeah, so exactly. you're, you're, you're late um, if you think we're just starting. Uh, just after the midterms, exactly. really. Uh, and then plus adding the pressure being put on Jay Powell from various officials to kind of cut rates as well. Mm -hmm. um, do you see other speed bumps ahead which are going to derail the economy? Well, you know, there's a theory that these, this tweet is not really directed at China as much as it's directed at Jay Powell, that the president wants to rattle the markets a little bit to force a cut onto yeah. the Fed just before the yeah, election starts. Yeah, I, I, I thought that theory as well. What do you well, think? Well, I think that's a little more sophisticated <laughs> than most people in government can actually manage these days. I think, <laughs> okay. I, think, uh, I think the Chinese sort of came back with a slightly less ambitious trade deal and the president decided he wanted to shake things up. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.